Hi, Carrie. Hey, Parker. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. How are you? And what's helping you get through these days? Well, two things jump out at me at the moment. One is talking with friends by phone or online, and the other is music. And the great thing about talking with you is that I get two in one. Aw, shucks. I don't know what to do when people say nice things. <laughs> Just say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Can I bring you a casserole now? Okay. <laughs> to the words and habit to us and how we live between the words. Well, Parker, I have to tell you that there was a posting on your Facebook page, a story you told that was really moving and powerful for me. Uh, would you be open to talking about that story? It, it was the one about Joel Elkis. Yeah, Carrie, I'd be glad to do so because Joel is another person whose memory I turn to during these hard times and previous hard times. He was an amazing man, born in 1913, died in 2015, so he was 101 years old when he died. Um, oh and has long been a, a very powerful mentor and role model for me when he was alive and even after his death. Let me tell his story quickly, because what he said one time that has stuck with me for many years um, is, is illumined and enhanced by when you know his background. So Joel was born in a Jewish family in, in Kovno, Lithuania in 1913. And when he was um, 17 years old in 1930, his parents, sensing what was coming, um, sensing that the Third Reich was on its way, they sent Joel to, to England. His dad had been a physician, and Joel studied medicine in England uh, for a number of years and began the research that made him a, a highly honored pioneer of modern psychiatry. He was the person who invented the first pharmaceutical relief for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So he was a really amazing scientist. And for over a decade, he chaired the psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins University. Well, the Nazis occupied Lithuania. His parents were right. Yeah. They needed to send their children to safety, and they did so early on. And eventually the Nazis herded all of Kovno's Jews into a ghetto. Um, the Kovno ghetto, which became quite famous really under the leadership of Joel's father. He was the elected leader of the Kovno ghetto. But Joel completely lost touch with his family during that time, and only after the war did he learn about the horrors of the Kovno ghetto, and then the fact that most of his family had been murdered at Auschwitz. Oh, um, absolutely, you know, stunning um, discovery. He had his suspicions, of course, but there, there, there weren't. Free, there wasn't a free flow of information about 
what was going on in Lithuania or anywhere else in the Third Reich. And I believe the figure was 39 members of the extended Elkis family were murdered. And so Joel and his sister were pretty much alone in the world. And and what what I really want people to know about Joel and what I remember constantly is that, I don't know whether to say in spite of all that or because of all that, Joel was a steady source of light and life to everyone who knew him. Not only of remarkable science, but of humanity, simple humanity, great sense of humor, uh, blessing everybody he touched. And certainly that included me during the 10 years that I was able to work with him off and on. So the story with that background comes from 2003 when I was sitting with Joel in a retreat circle of 25 people, one of our circles of trust. We were exploring what we might do in the wake of 9-11, which of course was an era of devastation in American life. The, The closest thing to the pandemic that some of us can think of in our own lives, or back to Vietnam, whatever. Um, What might we do in the wake of 9-11? Joel, as he often did, listened carefully as that circle explored possibilities. What's our calling in the midst of this? And toward the end of that session, Joel finally spoke. He said, We all understand that night is falling fast in our world. We must learn to garden in the dark. We must learn to garden in the dark. Well, when when someone like Joel, with his background, speaks about how to make one's way through the darkest of times, wise people listen. And that's what happened. A great silence fell over that circle. He knew the the world's darkness all too well, but he was a master gardener. And everyone in the circle knew that. He, He planted seeds that ranged from doing science in service of human suffering to assuaging people's fears about 9 11. He had a special concern and care for the first responders and encouraging especially young people's dreams, and also to using his truly outrageous sense of humor to lighten everyone's load. I think Joel was the one of the people who really reinforced in me the notion that humor, rightly understood, rightly used, has a place everywhere, um, even in the yeah. darkest of times. And Joel also left me with a question. And that question is, what seeds of hope and new life can we plant right now as we learn to garden in the darkness that now blankets our world? Thank you for telling that story, Parker, and and giving the background, because I think knowing the background makes the story and his comment um, all the more powerful and important. Yeah, the idea of gardening in the dark, as we're all asking, what is my part right now? As our physical circumstances uh, have been limited, you know, you know, what 
what can I offer? What, what are my gifts? How do I navigate this? I, th- I think this idea when I, when he said we must learn to garden in the dark, just really just hit me straight where I needed to, to hear it, you know. And yes, you know, the first week of sheltering at home, I had this tremendous energy, and I had started like nineteen thousand projects because that's what I do. And then the second week, a couple dear family members tested positive for the coronavirus. They're okay, but. Um, it was very scary time, and I just stopped. And this week, I'm I'm saying, well, that's it. That's what I need to do from here on out. Um, my my job is to garden in the dark. We don't know exactly where this is going. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. All we know is it's going to be different. That's for sure. Um, the whole world has come through something, and you know, to have the faith and courage that it takes to garden. As a gardener myself, you know, there's there's a patience to farming. There's an action and a patience at the same time. You have to plant the seeds and you nurture them. But you also have to believe that they're growing and that the rain's going to come and the sun's going to shine and things will bloom in their own time. So thank you. That metaphor was super powerful for me. Like, yes, that's that's what I need to be doing right now, mm. um, yeah. you know, doing yeah. what I can uh, to the best of my, my abilities and gifts and gardening in the dark. And, and when the sun doesn't shine and the rain doesn't come, which sometimes happens, metaphorically, yeah. it's what's happening right now. We have to persist. We have to return to the task again and again and again and not give up hope in the future it seems to me at least i'm a non-gardener but i'm married to a gardener and (laughs) and so i i understand i understand the persistence and the really the fidelity that gardening takes because it doesn't always work out just like america doesn't always work out or humankind doesn't always work out yeah, I, I just um, finished reading a wonderful Wendell Berry book um, with my, I have a wonderful kind of spiritual book group. Uh, I call them the Anamkara. Mm-hmm. And um, we read Hannah Coulter, which is mm-hmm. a Wendell Berry novel. It's just beautiful. It's like, mm-hmm. I think it's become one of my favorite books ever. But it's all about a small farming community in Kentucky and a small farming community where nothing happens and everything happens. Mm, Because within our lives, it's like in the course of, no, the Red Sea did not part today in in Bloomington, Indiana, but but everything happened here. You know, everything happened. And it's a farming community, so there's a lot in this book about the the perseverance and the patience and the the active um, working with you know, the natural world um, in this book. So so it was also a really great time for me to read the Joel story yeah. while kind of finishing up Hannah Coulter. Well, as you know, I, I, I love Hannah Coulter too. And I just wanted to talk, you just stimulated my memory about that beautiful, beautiful book, which I too think is one of my all-time favorites. Um, and this little town called Port Royal, the, uh, the, the author um, refers to the people of Port Royal as the Port Royal membership. And yeah. It's a phrase I love. It's so much more intimate than citizen, um, although citizen is an important word too. 
in my vocabulary. But it occurs to me, of course, as it has occurred to a lot of people, that this pandemic shows that we really are all in this together around yes. the globe and yes. the, 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 the borders, the boundaries between our countries or our states or our districts are totally artificial and meaningless. The virus doesn't care about them, and I don't think we should care about them that much either. Um, and this sense of, of becoming one with everyone, I think, has yeah. a little better chance of living on the other side of this crisis than it seems to have, uh, have succeeded so far. Yes, the idea of membership. It's kind of like citizenship, and it's different than... It's family, but it's also community. But we are uh, in membership with one another. And right now, this virus is making that all the more clear. We are one body um, with, with many members. Yeah. 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 And then also, uh, there's a Marge Piercy poem that is about gardening. That also, as soon as I read that um, wonderful story about Joel, that that poem came to me as well. And I know it's a poem that, that you really enjoy too. It's called The Seven of Pentacles. And I thought we could maybe kind of go through that poem with, you know, the topic of where we are in time, Joel's story, and learning how to garden in the dark. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Are you up for it? I'm, I'm so glad you remembered that poem. I was glad at the moment you did, and I'm glad now. You know, I'm thinking maybe... Um, Shall I read it first, and then in, as we get into our conversation, you read it again, because it's a longish poem, and we might want to yeah. ref refresh people about it. And we'll post it on our website with the podcast, right, so people can... Yeah, and we do something now called Postcards from the Edge, that people can comment on these things and send us comments, and we're actually putting those up as postcards um, in our in our newsletter and up on the website. So so the poem will be there and and also, you know, our conversation. So okay. that'll that'll be nice to have there. Great. Well, first reading The Seven of Pentacles by Marge Piercy. And since the title is a little baffling, I'll just explain to people that Marge Piercy wrote a series of poems about the images on the back of tarot cards. And there is a tarot card called The Seven of Pentacles. And the scene she's describing here, in the language of a poet, is the image that was on the back of that card. So, the Seven of Pentacles. Under a sky, the color of pea soup, she is looking at her work, growing away there, actively, sickly, like grapevines or pole beans, as things grow in the real world, slowly enough, if you tend them properly, if you mulch, if you water, if you provide birds that eat insects a home and winter food, if the sun shines and you pick off caterpillars, if the praying mantis comes and the ladybugs and the bees, then the plants flourish, but at their own internal clock. Connections are made slowly. Sometimes they grow underground. You cannot tell always by looking what is happening. More than half a tree is spread out in the soil under your feet. Penetrate quietly as the earthworm that blows no trumpet. Fight persistently as the creeper that brings down the tree. 
spread like the squash plant that overruns the garden, gnaw in the dark and use the sun to make sugar. Weave real connections, create real nodes, build real houses. Live a life you can endure, make love that is loving. Keep tangling and interweaving and taking more in. A thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside, but to us, interconnected with rabbit runs and burrows and lairs. Live as if you liked yourself, and it may happen. Reach out, keep reaching out, keep bringing in. This is how we are going to live for a long time. Not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, after the long season of tending and growth, the harvest comes. Mm. Thank you, Parker. There is so much in that poem that uh, speaks to my condition, maybe speaks to many of our conditions. Me too, me too. What would you think about going, you know, maybe through verse by verse and just kind of talking about each section? Let's do it. Yeah. So first of all, if you're from the Midwest, under a sky, the color of pea soup might just go by, uh, unless you're from the Midwest or if you're from Tornado Alley. Because Mm -hmm. when the sky turns green, that's when you go find shelter. And... Uh, that's that's immediately it's like oh there's something brewing there's something dangerous um around us the garden might be threatened the garden might be threatened uh but you don't know and yet she's out there she's out there yeah you know that that image carrie uh, of her looking at her work growing away there Mm -hmm. reminds me so powerfully of my grandfather who was a great gardener he would he lived in Waterloo, Iowa. He would come home after his job making machine parts for uh, John Deere tractors. He'd scrub up, get the grease off his forearms using 20 mule team borax, which was like sandpaper, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and then he'd go out to his garden. He'd work for a while, uh, hour, hour and a half after hard labor at the factory, come in, wash again, eat dinner, but after dinner, and he would, when I was there, he'd invite me to do this with him. He'd go out and just stand at the fence, smoke a pipe, mm, and look okay. at the fruits yes. of his hands, which is which is such a beautiful image for me. And I, I've often thought in my busy and sometimes breathless life, I don't spend enough time just standing at the fence and looking at the crop that I've helped create. Yeah, and there's something really lovely about watching it grow and and also seeing the fruit. I um the woman who taught me how to knit, she I was first thing I learned to knit was socks, which is kind of a weird thing to learn first, but um she was very clear about like okay, you knit a while, then you lay it down, and then you admire. That's great. That's so good. She said, the admiring part is very important. So you knit a little while on it, lay it down, admire your work. It's lovely. And it's kind of like your your grandfather. It's like you stand by the fence and you admire what you've done and you admire what what 
the earth has brought forth. And yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's a wonderful thing. Exactly. So maybe before we move on to the rest of that stanza, just a quick lesson maybe for me about what that means today, when it can feel like everything is lost. But everything isn't lost. Um, you know, it's some of the some of our work products, as big people like to say, may be lost, may be gone. But the people doing the work, we hope the, as many of them as possible will still be here. And if their work has shaped them in important ways, and if this experience shapes them in important ways, we'll carry something forward in our in ourselves and in our sense of community that Absolutely, is worth yeah. worth and it's worth standing and looking across the fence at all those possibilities in a yes. time when it seems like all is lost but it isn't yeah that's such an important point and and then the next part there's a whole lot of ifs mm -hmm. you know and I, if you tend them properly, if you if you mulch, if you water, if you provide birds that eat insects a home, if the sun shines and you pick off the caterpillars, you know it's there's all these ifs, if, if, and if, and then the plants flourish, but at their own internal clock. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of ifs to gardening. You do it anyway. You know, it's one of those things that. You know, you don't know if all those ifs are going to come together, but often enough they have. I mm -hmm. mean, mm -hmm. you know, the flowers keep growing and the seeds keep happening, and often enough they have. Um, but all these things must come together, and I think in this, these times as well, the things that will come together uh, from what we're learning will be really important. Yeah, and I think immediately of Joel Elkis because, you know, he saw the earth and his people scorched, mm -hmm. eliminated, yes. you know, the Holocaust is, is all about everything coming down. And he must have been tempted to despair as he looked across the fence at, yes. at nothing, nothing that he had grown up with, nothing that he knew, nothing that was familiar, nothing that was home. And yet he spent the rest of his life planting seeds, some of which flourished, some of which didn't. But when he said, we must become gardeners in the dark, I, I knew that those were trustworthy words from a guy who had done exactly that. The other thing about those ifs, which I think people like Joel know, knew, um, is, that, is that some of these ifs are things we have control over. over. If you mm -hmm. tend them properly, if you mulch, if you water, if you provide a home and winter food for birds that eat insects, those are the things that are in our power to do. And if you want a garden, it's our responsibility to do them. But other ifs in that stanza are things over which we have no control. If the sun shines, if the praying mantis comes, etc., uh, etc. Et if, the, if the birds come to that home and winter food that you've offered them, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, it, as we, you said earlier, a tornado comes. Maybe a drought comes. But if you're a farmer or a gardener, you, you know that your calling is to return again in the growing season 
and have faith that the miracle can happen one more time and one more time and one more time. Yes, and and the miracle does happen one more time and one more time. There are so many examples of that in, in our world and also in our lives, you know. Joel, you know, when, when the earth had been raised, um, the miracle happened again and again for him in his life. So, yeah, you know, and I also like that at their own internal clock. I have a habit of wanting to push the river, you know. No, um, really? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so busted. <laughs> Self-busted, yeah. I might have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, um, that folk singer nature in me, okay, now we roll up our sleeves and we work for, and I, I have a tendency to want to push the river. And there is my part of it, like you were saying, in all the ifs, there, there are, there's my responsibility in that. Mm-hmm. But there's also an internal clock that, that I have to be willing to work with, that human beings, um, I always say, love is simple, people are complicated, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so some things take time. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I like that little at the end, but at their own internal clock. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, and it's about respecting the capacity and the patterns and the timetable for growth in not only in plants but in other people and and in cultures and communities Um, i think there's so much to be learned from that by those of us who have a tendency to push the river but i have to say i'm totally shocked to learn that a traveling folk singer who's been doing this for many years is not just a totally laid-back, go-with-the-flow hippie, right? That's just, that's stunning, stunning, stunning. It's such a disillusionment for me here. Oh, you know, yeah, that's my job, too. <laughs> that's a good job, taking away okay. people's illusions. Yeah, yeah. Well, this next section is starting to talk about process a little bit. Connections are made slowly. Sometimes they grow underground. You cannot always tell by looking what's happening. I have a song called The Beautiful Not Yet, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the whole idea behind it. You cannot always tell by looking what is happening. Mm -hmm. And and the but the connections are being made. You're if you're watering, if you're mulching, if you're you know, the connections are being made. And that more that more than half of the tree is spread out in the soil beneath your feet. Mm There's a lot that goes on in that underlying network. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of that line as the, the big flashy. There's the big flashy stuff you you see on the front page, and then then there's all the work that people are doing every day in their own way, in their own moment and time. Um, that's the root system that's nourishing it all. You know, it's yeah, more than half of the tree is is there in the network. Mm-hmm. And it's it's thriving in this really amazing and important way. Yeah. It reminds me, Carrie, it just came to me that it reminds me of Thomas Merton's notion of the hidden wholeness, hidden underneath the broken surface oh. of, the, of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's a question again for today. Is like we see the brokenness everywhere. We see the devastation. We see all the stuff falling to ground. But what's happening under the soil? where the where yes. that root system is. And, you know, my best guess is that there are some very good gardeners in this world who are already at work replenishing the root system. And yes. then, then there are other places where 
because of the way people approach this, the root system rots and dies. That yeah. instead of becoming a Joel yeah. Elkus, who becomes a, a gardener, a master gardener, you become a cynic who spreads the, some of the same toxins that have gotten us into this situation. Not, I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about our response to the virus. Yeah. And that's something over which we have control. We, we couldn't control the virus coming here, but we certainly, as a country, could have done a lot better job working with a response that would protect everybody in this country and around the world to the maximum extent possible. Yes. Uh, yeah. Granting that it, it could never be everyone because a pandemic is a pandemic. But anyway, I, th I think this notion that, that not everything that's important appears before your eyes. Some of it is in that root system that you named that's under the ground. And I think some folks um, are discovering some of that root system. You know, I I have been talking to people who uh, have rediscovered baking, and they they can't be on the go all the time, and so they're home and they're planting a garden this year, and they're taking walks like every day. You know, um, a friend of mine was talking about she lives uh, on a, a city block where she's hearing children in the street, you know, playing. And mm -hmm. and she's sitting on her porch in an old fashioned kind of way, waving to the people go by. Hi, how you doing? You know, mm -hmm. it's like people are discovering some of those underground things that are so important that have been getting lost a bit in our perpetual motion uh, yeah. of this society we've been living in. I think they're also discovering, Carrie, something you talk about a lot, and that's the importance of kindness. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's like some of the mean edges are getting ground down a bit, I, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I'm finding that too. And then she kind of talks about adding to the network, how we do that. It's like penetrate quietly as the earthworm that blows no trumpet. If we had no earthworms, we would have no plants. You know, right. we would, the earth, they, we, we need those earth. They're such amazing creatures. And at the same time, they blow no trumpet. They just kind of quietly in the ground do their work. Yeah, and then um, fight persistently as the creeper that brings down the tree spread mm -hmm. like the squash plant that overruns the garden and all <laughs> in the dark and use the sun to make sure. You know, the reason, I, th I think... I don't know if Marge Piercy was a Quaker or uh, uh, adhered to a doctrine of nonviolence, but those those are marching orders for nonviolent social change agents. You know, mm -hmm. don't don't blow mm -hmm. your trumpet. Be persistent, but don't make a big deal out of it. Spread like a squash plant that overruns the garden, and that's yeah. Gnaw in yeah. the dark and use the sun to make sugar. That's actually how great movements have proceeded. Yes. Uh, every one of those has an analog, I think, in the history of social movements. Yeah, I think about that squash plant, you know, that, that I mean, I, I grew egg gourds this last summer, and I planted too many of them. And egg gourds actually have no purpose other than to look like chicken eggs when they're ha hanging on their vine. And they're, they're like the most marvelous, delightful things ever. They and are. I planted... I planted too many of them, and they literally took over my garden, climbed up my garage roof and up onto my garage roof. I mean, it, but I just couldn't bear to 
to like thin any of the, any of them out because they were just so delightful to have these chicken eggs like well, gourds looking well, everywhere. Well, tell me about it because the last time you visited Sharon and me, they about overtook our house as well. <laughs> <laughs> I brought you. I was giving away egg gourds. You want you egg gourds? You certainly gourd? were. <laughs> I was. It's like some people, you know, they, they you know, they, they, Johnny Appleseed. It was no. It's you know, have an egg gourd, you know. So, but anyways, but I love that image of, you know, be persistent, because oh my gosh, those little funny delightful vines, they took over. You know, they, sure they, they, and they just used that sun and made eggs. You know, mm-hmm. it was just. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing. I don't know, vegetable, whatever it is, but <laughs> it, it's a it's a gourd. You can't eat it. There's no use for it other than to like snicker. I, I mean, know. I tried. That... I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Had to go to the dentist. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, maybe this is a good time for you to reread the poem. We're about halfway through it, and maybe we okay. can reboot sure. people's memories of the. Before we move on to the next verse. Yeah, it's good to hear a poem more than once. Okay, uh, The Seven of Pentacles by Marge Piercy. Under a sky the color of pea soup, she is looking at her work growing away there, actively, thickly, like grapevines or pole beans, as things grow in the real world, slowly enough. If you tend them properly, if you mulch, if you water, If you provide birds that eat insects a home and winter food, if the sun shines and you pick off the caterpillars, if the praying mantis comes and the ladybugs and the bees, then the plants flourish, but at their own internal clock. Connections are made slowly. Sometimes they grow underground. You cannot tell always by looking what is happening. More than half the tree is spread out in the soil under your feet. Penetrate quietly as the earthworm that blows no trumpet. Fight persistently as the creeper that brings down the tree. Spread like the squash plant that overruns the garden, gnaw in the dark, and use the sun to make sugar. Weave real connections, create real nodes, build real houses. Live a life you can endure. Make love that is loving. Keep tangling and interweaving and taking more in. A thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside, but to us, interconnected with rapid runs and burrows and lairs. Live as though you liked yourself, and it might happen. Reach out. Keep reaching out. Keep bringing in. This is how we're going to live for a long time, but not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, after the long season of tending and growth, the harvest comes. Thank you. Thank you. How beautiful. Weave, moving on to the third stanza, weave real connections, create real nodes, build real houses, live a life you can endure, make love that is loving. Those are powerful lines that sort of challenge the fact that we sometimes don't build real things. Um, We build illusions. We build fictions about ourselves and about other people and about the larger world and they they become very destructive and you know here's a poem about gardening that's really calling us back to the ground of reality in both literal and metaphorical ways i like those lines a lot i do too and it's interesting live a life you can endure what a powerful phrase 
it always stops me a little bit. You know, what does that mean? The call to weave real things, connections. What are the nodes? Where, where do those happen? What's the house I'm living in? Well, I think metaphorically. The, the, yeah, I think the price, I know you agree with this, but I think the price for living a life you can't endure is huge. And, yeah. uh, and I've certainly had uh, my experiences of that, of, you know, building on a false image of who I am or how I'm related to other people or the world. And it takes time. I mean, I think one of the things young people really struggle with in the teens and the 20s and others on into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, I would count myself in that group, is, you know, what's real for me? What What is endurable for me? Because whatever it is, it ain't what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm in the wrong job or I'm in the in a wrong relationship or I'm, I've somehow gotten crosswise with my own soul. All kinds of ways yeah. to do that, you know. And I've, I've done that too. You know, there are the times in my life when I realize that I haven't been listening to my soul's imperative in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that's not sustainable. It's, you know, that's not a life you can endure. Um, and there's real cost to that. Um, and sometimes there's perks to it, but there's also real real cost to it. So yeah, those are powerful lines. And then he, she talks about, you know, tangling and interweaving and taking more in, that it's messy. I, I just mm-hmm. love this image of all the messiness of it, the thicket, explains the ramble wilderness. It explains your office. Well, you know? <laughs> well yeah. I, I wonder how many people right now, uh, if, if a lot of people are doing Zoom right now and, you know, the video conferencing and have one little section of their house that's so neat and tidy and pretty, and that's where the Zoom screen goes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, the rest of it looks like a junkyard, but who yeah. cares? Who cares? Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, again, I just out, you know, I just, I just gave myself away. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's so good. I, I leave some, some piles of things. Um, but I do like but, your point. It's messy. So please carry on with that. Yeah, that it's, it's messy, and to the outside, sometimes it's, it's like, what is. These connections, you know, the, the whole six degree of separation, I don't believe there's six degrees to anyone in, the, you know, I think it's maybe two at the most. I mean, there's always these tangles and interconnections, and it looks like a bramble to uh, people on the outside. But to what's happening for us, there, there is a sense to it that growth and movement is not always linear. Sometimes it twists around and it comes back on itself and it loops again and then it goes, you know, the, all, the, all the messiness that this whole time of pandemic, it has been disruptive for all of us. It has changed our patterns in really uh, incredible ways uh, and, and heartbreaking ways for a lot of us. And so it's messy. Being a human being is, is not always that clear path. So I, I like that part of the poem because it's, it's like celebrating in a, in a certain kind of way the messiness of, of being human and yeah, growing. Yeah, I, I uh, connect that, Carrie, with um, the, the first maybe 20 years of my life 
after I got out of grad school where nobody who was important in my life or the people, most of the people around me, nobody understood what I was doing with my life. And I could never explain it to them. You know, I, I, I kept saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. I can only tell you I can't not do it. That's the soul's imperative, what I'd say today. And, and so th these lines from Marge Piercy talk about um, the, a thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside, but to us interconnected with rabbit runs and burrows and lairs. So rabbit runs, burrows, and lairs, they allow us to get where we want to go uh, out of sight of other people, out of other people's judgment, and lairs where we rest, sleep, replenish our energy for the next mm, step. Yeah. And, yeah, I like and, that. And I, I, I feel like I was somehow graced with, with whatever it takes to do that in my early years. And, and now at 81, I'm so happy that I did because it took me to the place I wanted to be. But, it, but, but when it delivered me there, I was ready to deal with all of those outside judgments. I, I had inner clarity about the rightness for me of what I was doing. And then there's this beautiful last stanza. You want to read that again? Live as if you liked yourself, and it may happen. Reach out, keep reaching out, keep bringing in. This is how we're going to live for a long time, but not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, after the long seasons of tending and growth, the harvest comes. Mm, mm, mm. Live as if you liked yourself, and it may happen. You know, I've, I've worked with this poem um, in workshops that I've done, and people always laugh at that. Almost always there's a little, a little kind of chuckle. That, La that laugh happens. of recognition. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, if you lived like you like yourself, what would that look like, <laughs> you know? To reach out, to keep risking reaching out. This is a stanza of encouragement, not blinking all the stuff that came before, but but to keep reaching out, keep bringing in, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And this is how we're going to live for a long time, but not forever. I mean, I love, that line has made me cry up, up, upon more than one occasion for different reasons. Absolutely. This, this whole stanza really, really speaks to me. I love the fact that the live as if you liked yourself line is followed by reach out, keep reaching out, and keep bringing in, which, mm -hmm. which for me rescues that first line from narcissism, you mm -hmm. know, because live as if you liked yourself isn't the whole story. Because if you genuinely like yourself in, in the deep sense of self-forgiveness, self-acceptance, you're dwelling um, easily in your own skin, then you're empowered to reach out to folks who need it uh, in all kinds of different ways. You're empowered to serve them. Yeah. Reach out, keep reaching out is about creating community. So I love the fact that when she gets to the beginning of this last stanza, she says something that could be misinterpreted as narcissistic, which in this country we need a lot less of right now <laughs> at, at every mm -hmm. level of our lives since we're getting uh -huh. daily lessons in what uber na narcissism looks like. Yeah. Um, and keep, reach out, keep reaching out, and keep bringing in. And then with you, Carrie, 
I love those last lines. This is how we're going to live for a long time, not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, after the long season of tending and growth, the harvest comes. And I just want to say that for me, over the last 20 years, I guess, since I realized I was not only growing older, I was actually getting old, <laughs> which is different. <laughs> just different. <laughs> Everybody who is alive is growing older, but not everyone has gotten old. Um, I realized that the image of the harvest is on the one hand, an image of death. I mean, that's when the field comes down, right? In the, in the eternal cycle of farming, whatever you've grown comes down. But then it is sent out to feed people. So yeah. for 20 years, my, at least, my, a key question for me is, has been, whom is my work meant to feed? And uh, mm -hmm. keeping my eye on, on that, keeping my eye on my desire to grow a harvest that would be nourishing to someone, somewhere, somehow, um, has been a real North Star for me. Yeah, I think about that in terms of, um, you know, my, my life as an artist, you know, like you, it was the thing I could not not do. Um, and it looked like a thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside a lot, a lot of times. But that that idea of creating art, you know, I had someone say to me in a in a workshop once, well, I really want to write and, and create art, but isn't that selfish? And I thought, wow, you know, that's really Puritan. <laughs> 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 but um, I didn't say that out loud. That was my inside voice. Um, but the idea, yes, it does something for me as a person. Uh, it does something for me that's really important and life-giving and spiritual and helps me kind of process my life. But if I was just doing it for me, I just have a diary, you know, I, I don't have any interest in just putting my diary out there. So yeah, that who, who is the harvest for? Who am I creating a harvest for in my life? And that can happen as an artist that can happen in any of our lives, I think. Well, as we as we bring this to a close, um, maybe a good question to leave with everyone who's listening, and certainly with ourselves, is whatever it is you're doing right now in the midst of this crisis, are you growing something that's meant to feed others, that could nourish others? Because if you are, you're also nourishing yourself. And yeah. um, that's a win-win for everybody. And I think the creativeness about it, that's one of the things in terms of those that those takeaways, that people are being very creative in how they are planting and growing and, you know, harvesting for, for others. They're being very creative in living like they like themselves. I think that's, that's something that uh, slowing down enough to, to kind of figure that out, to play with the creativity part of this. I just, I just think that's been a really interesting and, and hopeful part of this experience. And I think also 
this going back to the beginning of gardening in the dark, I think something that I've been working with and I have had many conversations with others now about living with uncertainty. You know, living daily with uncertainty. We didn't expect this to come. Some people predicted it, but I don't know if the average person was thinking, oh yeah, in two months, this is what we'll be doing. Well, maybe two years ago. Two months, some people did say and really saw. And But w- what I'm saying is living that one day at a time, living gardening, doing the soul's imperative, staying true to the soul's imperative with whatever circumstance we're in and living that one day at a time. I think that's been a really important lesson. I, I have a song on a, my last album called Learning to Sit with Not Knowing. And I think it was a little pep talk to myself <laughs> in a way. <laughs> like, to learn to sit with not knowing. Give myself a little mercy with that. Well, I'll tell you something. I feel better from talking with you, and I'm going to feel better yet after I hear you sing that song, if you're willing to do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me get my guitar. All right. Learning to sit without knowing When I don't see where it's going I cool my heels and start slowing I'm learning to sit with not knowing I'm learning to live with what's next What if in my best guess Be kinder when it's a process I'm learning to live with what's next Here's a clear space that I've chosen Where the denseness of this world opens where there's something holding steady and true Regardless of me or you I'm learning to live with the high stakes of Befriending my mistakes I lay my hand where my heart aches I'm learning to Here's a clear space that I've chosen Where the denseness of this world opens Where there's something holding steady and true Regardless of me or you
Learning to live with what takes time The ribbon across some finish line Stop feeling I'm always a day behind I'm learning to live with what takes time I'm learning to live with not knowing I don't see where it's going I cool my heels and stop slowing I'm learning to sit with not knowing I'm learning to sit with not knowing I'm learning to sit with not knowing Thanks, Carrie, and thanks also to the folks we've invoked today uh, in memory and in poetry. So thanks to Joel Elkis, always, for his witness, and thanks yeah. to Marge Piercy for a beautiful, beautiful poem. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who is listening today. Um, you know, it does feel like a community conversation, and I should say that we do have conversation starters now on our website as well um, that people are gathering uh, as a family or now on Zoom to talk about the podcast or the ideas or thoughts in the podcast. And we have some conversation starters there on our website. So, so Parker, what do you say? It's a wrap. You've been listening to The Growing <laughs> Edge. <laughs> Shall we keep that in? <laughs> yeah, you've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask if you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to our dear friend Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production because she's a gardener. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>